I think the lesson that I've taught them is that we, Hueys, can make anything we want. Yeah. Out of any material, anytime we want. That's just, if, if they can believe some even tiny piece of that, then that'll be really useful in life for them. Welcome to Startup Dad, the podcast where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups and business. I'm your host, Adam Fishman. And in this episode, I sat down with Aaron Huey. Fatherly called Aaron the third coolest dad in America, ahead of Barack Obama and Childish Gambino, and beat out only by LeBron James and Kelly Slater. Aaron is an award-winning National Geographic photographer, a three-time Stanford fellow, and the founder and chief creative officer of Amplifier.org, a nonprofit that creates visual campaigns for various social movements. Aaron also broke crowdfunding records when he raised $3 million in a few weeks for his projects, We the People and We the Future. Prior to all of this, he was known for his 3,349-mile solo walk across America with his dog, Cosmo. It took them 154 days, and they walked every step without a support team or a cell phone. In this episode, Aaron talks about life with his wife and two kids, how he's encouraged them to explore and take risks, fostered a love of creativity and expression in them. He discusses the dynamics of his family, the inspiration behind his children's unique names, and how his wife's steady nature complements his high-speed ADHD personality. Aaron is a multidimensional individual, balancing a high-impact professional life with a grounded family life, he is deeply involved in social issues, tech innovations, and storytelling, and is one of the most unique guests I've ever had on the program. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Startup Dad podcast, Aaron Huey. It is so great to have you here. I'm super excited for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Aaron, I was hoping we could get started and just talk about your professional life. You have a fascinating career in a few different parts. So I was hoping you could just tell me and the listeners a little bit more about you. Sure. I live a lot of lives. Some people only know me from my National Geographic world. That's where a lot of my social and cultural capital is. With the work that I've done as a National Geographic magazine photographer, I've done over 30 stories for National Geographic. And I do all kinds of things within the brand, around new media, a lot of AR, VR, spatial web, kind of pushing the edges of storytelling in that way. But it started with real legacy, serious, deep photojournalism for print magazines and a history of doing work around news and global events. But then that parlayed into all kinds of things in new tech and new mediums. And I don't really have an allegiance to an individual medium. So some days I really wonder if I'm really actually, am I a photographer? I'm not really sure some days because I'm, I'm working in whatever, you know, in whatever medium is required to tell the story. And some people don't know that I'm an National Geographic photographer and only know me as the founder of Amplifier.org. I have a nonprofit that builds visual campaigns for movements. And I left that mission pretty broad because... Really, anything we care about is a movement. Anything worth putting time into can be a movement. So it means that I can work on the climate crisis. I can work on gun violence. I can work on shoring up the pillars of democracy in the lead up to an election. I can 
really pick and choose. And my role in that is as a creative director and a campaign builder. And I've got a lot of history with design thinking, spent a lot of time at Stanford's mm-hmm. D school and the methodology behind design thinking and the kind of media experimentation that I did there weaves throughout all of my work. And my most recent stint with Stanford was as a Starling Lab fellow working on data integrity for imagery specifically wow. in a world where we now will no longer be able to tell what is real and not real. And the blockchain as a solution for that. Yeah. I'm, wow. I'm everywhere. Wow. That is such super important work. I get very concerned about that border of what is real and not real anymore. So amazing that you're putting your talents towards that kind of responsibility. You've also had some pretty impressive record setting moments. You broke some crowdfunding records. Tell me a little bit about that. We the People was the first one. So yeah, I think the first time probably Amplifier as an organization hit most people's radar was around Trump's inauguration and the Women's March because the imagery that we made became the most ubiquitous imagery of that time and was carried into the streets and flooded the women's marches around the world because everything we make at Amplifier is everything's a free download and everything is it's meant to have infinite distribution. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people print it and do things with it, like make clothes and make projections and make their own banners. But we took over full page ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times and USA Today, and we hacked the inauguration with a series of symbols that project, We the People, and it raised for us, you know, which at the time was a one and a half person organization in this backyard office, raised, you know, almost $3 million over the course of a few weeks. Wow. Selling those images and giving them away for free. It just was a huge crowdfunding effort on Kickstarter, actually, most of it. And that required then the, the enlarging of Amplifier into a much larger staff. But then that allowed us to start building bigger and bigger portfolios to work on any movement we wanted to. That's amazing. Congrats on all that success. What Thanks. a huge accomplishment, breaking all those records on Kickstarter. And I just, I looked at crowdfunding a lot because it's, you don't have any bosses, you don't have anybody, you don't have any strings really attached yeah. besides what you offer your audience. So we've done that with many campaigns and I did it after my National Geographic coverage of the Sherpas. I did all our coverage in the Everest region for National Geographic around the time that that big avalanche killed 16 Sherpas in the ice field at Everest Base Camp. And that was one of the first big flash sales of imagery as prints that raised money. We raised half a million dollars in, I think, seven days, wow. five, six, seven days. And so, yeah, crowdfunding, we lean on that a lot. I think about it a lot when I think of how to get something going quickly that's got obvious movement and momentum. That's really great. So I wanted to ask you, probably you mentioned the most important thing was that you were named the third coolest dad in America (laughs) by fatherly.com. You beat out Barack Obama, Childish Gambino, and only lost to LeBron James and Kelly Slater. How did that come about? How does one identify you as the coolest dad in America? No clue. I mean, these were in like Instagram heydays. Yeah. And... I was one of a handful of photographers that had the keys to the National Geographic Instagram account. And so we built that from zero, basically, into 200 and whatever, 60 million people on it. But at the time, I had a large following, and I was feeding National Geographic. And my son was starting to go on travels with me with a camera. And I posted a picture of him on National Geographic's Instagram stream when it didn't have 
you know, nobody tried to control what we put on that feed mm-hmm. and everybody wanted to see what he was taking pictures of. And I couldn't put it on there and I couldn't put it on my own. So I started an Instagram account for a four-year-old that day, which I never let him look at. And within like a couple of days, there were 30,000 people on it. Wow. And I think that this group called fatherly.com, one of these father's publications, they were seeing all this Instagram stuff of a father and son interacting and, you know, and those stories of fatherhood told through social media in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I think they were looking for ways to showcase that kind of a role model using that medium for good, because we all know now at the end of the story, how much bad social media yeah. has done. Now yeah. it's not quite as shiny as it was when we were doing that when Hawkeye was four years old. <laughs> yeah, cer- certainly not. Post-crash of democracy almost, we are in a different social media world. Yes, we absolutely are. <laughs> so if I rewind the clock all the way to childhood, Aaron, how did you get started with this? Where are you from? What was life like growing up? I grew up in a really small town in Wyoming, which is actually you know big for Wyoming scale. It was town of 5,000, which I think is the seventh biggest town in Wyoming. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> and I grew up in super isolation, right? Like on the edge of a field that grew Coors Barley and sugar beets. But in my hometown, there were always, there was a super active rotary club and there were always exchange students. We had a, like six exchange students a year in this tiny high school. Wow. Yeah, my dad was in Rotary, and I always just knew, I was like, I'm going to do that, too. I'm going to be one of these people in another country. And I went straight from small town Wyoming to Slovakia right after the breakup of Czechoslovakia and got a glimpse at how easy it was to travel in really out there places kind of off the map. And I never went back, and it just snowballed, and it became my whole life. Wow. But it started in that small town. and So the, the Rotary Club in your small town is the thing that inspired you to become a world traveler. Well, they facilitated it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess they inspired it too. I mean, like, yeah. they served up all kinds of people speaking in other languages about a world that I got to know about firsthand. Yeah. You know, by wow. meeting those people. Sure. Yeah. And you've, it sounds like you've lived all over the place. You mentioned Afghanistan, Yemen, Pakistan. I I lived in Afghanistan for a time, photographing the drug war for the New York Times and the New Yorker. I went back and forth to Pakistan for years and years, living in Lahore and Karachi, and lived in Yemen with Kristen, my wife, before we were married, when she was studying Arabic there. You also mentioned that the most risky and exotic thing you could do was actually back here at home. And so you did something similar to what I've seen in Forrest Gump, but you walked across the country in the span of like half a year or so, or yeah. a little less than so, that. Yeah. I had by that point, by early 2002, when I did that, I'd been traveling all over the world and had, had been documenting Sufis and the Taliban and 20th anniversary of the hostage crisis here in Iran and is bouncing all over the world. And I think even by then, I mean, it, I didn't stop doing that, but I realized that There was something close, as close as you can get, that was even more mysterious than like an exotic market scene somewhere else on the far side of the earth. And so I I devised a walk from San Diego to New York City, or from Encinitas more specifically to New York City, 3,349 miles in 154 days. And there were cell phones, but I did not take a cell phone. 
mm-hmm. and I had no support crew. And wow. I slept on the side of the roads and in the homes of strangers. And I had with me a gigantic husky Malamute wolf dog. Wow. Malamute wolf mix named Cosmo. And she pulled a dog cart on wheels with cut out flames on the sides. <laughs> and I felt like I could sleep anywhere soundly with a gigantic wolf dog like that. So of course I slept very soundly with that wolf dog watching over me. On yeah, the side your of the protector. <laughs> the photographs from that launched my career. I didn't do it to make like a magazine story, but at the end of it, I had a lot of portraits of America that I sent in a box to the editor-in-chief of the Smithsonian, which is not how you pitch magazine stories at all. (laughs) That's not how it works. But he handed it to the photo editors and said, we're going to run this. And it became really my first really big piece and really launched my career in a lot of ways. That was it. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Would you ever do it again? I mean, you're a little bit older no, now. No, it was crazy painful. I mean, later I, you know, you you yearn for like the romantic parts of some journey. So I, of course, wanted like the isolation and the breakthroughs and like the yeah. big moments of that. But the physicality of it was incredibly painful. <clears throat> yeah. I kept trying to think of ways to replicate it. I ultimately would end up doing things like hitchhiking across Siberia. But I wouldn't like walk across Siberia. Yeah, I'm not sure the temperature <laughs> would be in your favor there from what I understand. So so you mentioned your wife, Kristen. You mentioned also one of your kids, Hawkeye. Tell me about your family. You have a wife, Kristen. You have two kids. How did you and Kristen meet? How old are your kids? Kristen and I met right after I finished my walk across America when I really thought I was invincible. And I was building an art commune 32 miles out of Santa Fe. And I met her in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Only girl I ever met in a bar, Cowgirl Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she got sucked into the jet stream of building an art commune and crazy art parties and is somehow stuck with me now for 20 some odd years now. Wow. Is she, you know, we'll come back to your kids in a second, but is she like you, an artist, like a free spirit or is she we more of so the... We are so different. Yeah. She is an artist in a different kind of way, I think. Okay. In the spiritual realm, maybe, but... Our minds are very different. This will probably come up in so many different parts of these conversations because I'm like super high speed ADHD guy. And Kristen is like just really steady and is never in a tunnel. Mm-hmm. I'm like always in some kind of tunnel. It's always a creative tunnel, but yeah. Kristen's never in a tunnel and sees everything. And so that's hard yeah. <laughs> to deal with yeah. all but, of this. But in many ways, you know, it's probably somewhat beneficial to have someone who is, yeah. you know, I, I've heard this described, creative people have described themselves to me as like a balloon that's kind of floating in the sky. And you need something that balloon is tied to, right? Like, yeah. and maybe for you, that's Kristen. Oh, it is for sure. And none of this would work without her. She holds up the entirety of the world here wow. in our home. So wow. all the great stories I've got, you know, all the travels to all these places. I wouldn't have any of those stories without Kristen. Yeah. If, if I so, wanted to have a family and since this is about the dad podcast, you know, yeah. this is like, if I wanted to be a dad, I, you know, Kristen holds it all up. Wow. So tell me about your kids. You got two, Hawkeye two, and Juno. Yeah. I have a 13 year old and an eight year old, Hawkeye Huey and Juno Huey. All right. And where did those names come from? So those are pretty unique names. So, like, who was in charge of name picking, and how'd you settle that with 
Kristen. I think it was actually part of, we wrote our own wedding contract in which it was a stated like paragraph in which I chose boy names and Kristen chose girl names. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I always knew that I wanted a son named Hawkeye probably since high school. I watched a lot of MASH. Oh, yeah. In high school. Yeah. Alan Alda, Hawkeye Pierce. Yeah. But that character, of course, was named after the character in Robert Louis Stevenson's Last of the Mohicans. So, mm -hmm. And that character has a lot of cool names because Hawkeye at different periods in his life had different names like Natty Bumpo and the Long Rifle and there's all these cool names. Mm -hmm. Deerslayer. So Hawkeye during different periods of his life can own a different name from, from that literature. Very cool. And might then, be coming into the deer slayer period. <laughs> 13, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. I can't wait. And then he has a super interesting middle name too. How do you pronounce that? His middle name? Wakia. Wakia. Uh, and Wakia, his middle name was given to him by my adopted Lakota family from, you know, an eight year long project that I did on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation that resulted in a TED Talk and Nat Geo cover story, and then ultimately really led to the creation of Amplifier. This family, when I told them that Kristen was pregnant, like bef basically before I could finish the sentence, the mother of the family said that his name would be Wakia. She didn't even ask any questions, or she just said his hmm. name will be Wakia. And I was like, well, that's pretty interesting. Let's, I will, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> wrote it down and I looked it up and I really liked the definition. It meant the thunder being and it uh -huh. meant like the shapeless storm clouds that come across the plains and cleanse the earth with lightning and rain. And they also have kind of their physical manifestation on the earth are kind of like the Hayokas or the sacred clowns that live in a counterclockwise universe. Hmm. And so we have a, Hawkeye the Thunder Being, who now will live the embodiment of the sacred clown in the counterclockwise universe. Yeah. We'll get what we asked for, I think. <laughs> it, it sounds like your kids are decently different from one another. Is that accurate? Crazy different. Yeah, yeah. and their middle names hold their powers. So my eight-year-old is Juno Liana, mm -hmm. and uh, Juno has got an analog in Hera, so there's like all these connections to love and marriage, but also to war and to birth and all these things. But Juno's middle name is Liana, which is like a climbing vine. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to her like, like plant medicinal coolness that is like the opposite of Hawkeye's fire. Not unlike maybe you and Kristen. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So speaking of Kristen, tell me about what Kristen does. She's not a National Geographic photographer. She's something different than that. So tell me a little bit about her and what she does. Kristen is a therapist. She works mostly with young people, a lot of kids in high school. And then just, I think she enjoys most working with people in their, you know, teens, to 20s and 30s. Did that factor in at all to your decision to have kids? Or is that a hard part of having and raising a family when you're also talking to other children and seeing some pretty horrific things every day? She was definitely not in therapy world yet when we were starting a family. She was mm -hmm. doing studies on policy and international affairs, which is why she ended up in Afghanistan and I was there. And oh. she graduated with that master's degree pregnant and the world would not hire her. So it kind of cut off that whole part of life. Wow. The inability to get a job as a pregnant woman or as a new mother. 
I think that like the the job of a therapist definitely means you're bringing a ton home because you're, I don't know how you, I guess it would probably be like how you have to create the walls, like as a war photographer, the kind of traumatic things that we see, we have to compartmentalize Mm -hmm. trauma and violence and all kinds of things, because I know she hears things that are scarier than anything we can imagine. It's like the truth is tougher than fiction and stranger and scarier sometimes. Yeah. So I think that's kind of always there and probably just compartmentalized in some way, just like my witnessing of death and trauma are compartmentalized. You mentioned to me too that when the two of you, there wasn't a really, you know, defined moment where you decided to have kids. There wasn't like you wrote it down and there was a a life plan or anything like that. And it happened. It was decided and it happened. But you also mentioned to me that it was not a safe financial moment. Yeah, it was decided, but it wasn't planned in some kind of way where you're like, this is the most ideal time and we're going to be financially okay because we were not, we're not stable yeah. at all in those times. And so that was a time when I really doubled down on, in the moment we found out, I really doubled down on really like a race to find any form of like a runway that would it include some kind of security. Yeah. Not a job though, because I'm not a person who can have a job. Yeah. Not possible. Yeah. But what would be the analog would be like I started applying to every fellowship, you know, Mm. for photographers. And I ultimately, you know, right after that got the fellowship to go to Stanford for a year for the Knight Fellowship that changed my life and changed how I see all media and storytelling. So that was part of it. But then I also was just reaching out into my world to try any safe ground or help. And one of the people I reached out to that changed my life as a photographer and like our life and our safety as parents was the director and writer, Tom Shadiak. He was famous for a lot of the early Jim Carrey movies and things like that. And Tom and I had been friends and known each other and he'd always offered to help me with things. And I always said, I don't really want to, I don't want to ask for help until I really need it. And I remember calling Tom and being like, I actually need your help now. Like I've never needed it before and I need it now. And we talked about like the insecurity of that kind of moment in the upcoming months. And I remember him asking if he could take care of our life for a couple of months, would I be able to create in a, in a, in a new way that mm-hmm. could help to, to like start something. And he gave us like for him a, a really small amount of money, but for us was a massive amount of money for a couple of months. And I started really the body of work that became my first national graphic cover story that became my Ted talk and the work that came out of it then became amplifiers. So that wow. singular investment from someone in that moment of need created a domino effect that created essentially all of my startups and all of my creative projects from there forward. Because I, I had the time to really do that creative work with no fear. Yeah. And the stability to start a family too, right? And to feel confident in doing that. Yeah. Because at the time I didn't even have a vision for like what like big making looked like and that level of, I wasn't trying to make a startup. I wasn't trying to, I was just trying to be a a photographer who could pay for my family's life and a new yeah. family's life and a, the life of a child. It wasn't, I was not envisioning the grandiose possibilities of National Geographic and TED Talks. I was just, survi- we were in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned too to me that your first memory of becoming a dad was around stability of income and that that fear that comes with that. 
Yeah, because I just think that people that don't have children don't, you know, they might say that they worry about money, but I don't think that they can even possibly remotely understand what it means to know, like, to have a child and to need to create that security for a child. Yeah. When you think about some of your earliest moments as a dad or as your kids have gotten older, what are some of the most surprising things that you've discovered about yourself and about fatherhood? I think I'm surprised always at how hard it is and how it's never not hard and how it just is yeah. ongoingly hard, but simultaneously because it's like peaks and valleys that overlap, it's also, I'm always surprised how simultaneously amazing and rewarding it is. So yeah. It's quite extreme. <laughs> yeah. So. And what was your role model situation like? How did you learn how to be a dad or who did you learn from? I think that's one of the hard parts. I probably learned more from my birth father who I visited probably more as a vacation dad, which is not the best role model for a father. And it's mm -hmm. not, but since that's what I had, that's what I had. And so it's, you know, I grew up with a stepfather who was always there, but who just didn't know how to parent somebody like me yeah, or to communicate with somebody like me. And we're in a small town in Wyoming. Like there weren't a lot of those connections that are, you know, in the, it just wasn't as much communication and connection and creation in relationships, I think, in the, you know, late seventies and early eighties in a small town in Wyoming. And so, yeah. you know, my role model is probably for fathering is probably more my birth father who was like a vacation dad. So I think at my worst, I'm like probably carry the traits of a vacation father that yeah. like that goes away a lot. So it's hard not having a role model. Yeah. That. I want to come back to that a little bit later, this idea of going away and how that's affected, you know, your life with your kids and, and stuff like that, because I imagine travel is still part of your life. But I, I also wanted to ask you about a particular parenting philosophy you mentioned to me, which is no blood, no foul, <laughs> which I read that and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. What does he mean by that? So tell me what that means. And then how do you kind of live that philosophy as a dad? I think it kind of just means not to freak out about stuff unless there's like real damage and I can use that in any kind of situation like a near miss with a car almost hitting you I'm not a road rager where I jump out and I start freaking out and somebody if they didn't hit me I don't really care everybody move on with your day yeah like I don't almost even like turn my head I'm just like that was close no blood yeah. no foul and with my kids it's literally like my kids need to if they're hurt and don't have to go to the hospital brush themselves off because I don't we don't, we're not doing any babying. Is that a philosophy that you and Kristen share or has that ever come at odds? Between definitely. No, I think it definitely is. And I, and we don't mean it in a way that's like small town Wyoming dad. That's like, doesn't like being close to their kids. And they're like, right. you know, get over it, kid. Cause we're right. like, we're physically close to their kids. Hawkeye still like leans on us and hugs and snuggles. They still get that kind of tenderness, but like, I just, if the kids are looking for sympathy for, you know, falling someplace, it's not coming from me unless there's some really serious yeah. hospital visit yeah. coming into play. Because the world is going to give them a lot of, they're going to get a lot of bumps in the world that, you know, it's going to just get harder. Yeah. So they are going to need to be pretty tough. We already yeah. told Hawkeye he's going to have to learn how to use bows and arrows to kill squirrels after the climate <laughs> collapse. It, it could very well be could very <laughs> so, well be true. Yeah. Juno too. Juno and Hawkeye are both learning that bow and arrow and 
getting ready for the squirrel hunting days of their future life. Wow. A whole other dad podcast is Children <laughs> in the Times of Apocalypse. This is true. I don't know what the audience would be for that. <laughs> It'd be a very polarizing audience, let's say that yeah. much. So. so I want to talk to you a little bit about, you are obviously quite possibly the most creative person that I've talked to on this show so far. All right, just your life and all of the things that you've done and the art and the photography and your work at the D school and, and everything else. How have you fostered this love and desire for creativity within your kids? How do you kind of bring that to them every day? How have you gotten them into it? We're making stuff together all the time. I've got like stuff all over my office that my children made. Like, I think like I've got like that's Hawkeye made that like four years ago and Juno wow. made that when she was three. And there's like little Juno sculptures all over the walls. Like that's our whole world is filled with the art that we make together. So we literally physically make art together. And then I think there is always makerdom in our travels because whether it's like, you know, we do rock hounding, which has its own maker element. We're finding beauty in the world. We're almost like sculpting it out of like what we find and tumbling it and polishing. I got like, I got this stuff all over my desk of like the things that we find. Wow. Like there's, you know, when you look at everything as art with your, you know, the kids already kind of could see everything as art because they don't judge through an aesthetic lens like we do. Like we measure yeah. everything against the aesthetics of what is supposed to be good or what we've been told is like good art or good light or bad light in photography. Yeah. So I run experiments like when Hawkeye was four, I, I bought him a camera and I made it an analog one so that it wasn't like a billion photos that he swiped on a cell phone. Sure. I that. And <clears throat> we started making things together and turned into years and years of self-created photo assignments and thousands of Polaroids. And I do the same thing with Juno. I look for what they are really in love with. Juno sees differently. Like Chris and I see differently. Juno sees everything she sees and she hears everything. She sees things so tiny. And she was always going around asking for my camera to photograph macro photos of flowers. Mm -hmm. And so then I started a project with Juno to look at like macro and microscopic things. Now there's a microscope camera now. It's like wow. 400 bucks. It shoots essentially at microscopic level with a point and shoot. That's amazing. And so I never hesitate. You know, we don't have a lot of money, but I never hesitate to buy and buy things that allow for creative outputs. Yeah. If it's like, if we can make something with it, I'm just like, I don't save anything for birthdays or Christmases. If I have an impulse, any super random impulse of something I want to make with my kids, it gets bought like that second that I think of it. Rock yeah. tumblers, like microscope cameras it could be like every other day we're just thinking wow. of new ways to make things in, in our exploration of the world yeah do you think your kids will grow up to follow a creative pursuit like you or do you think they'll maybe go do something a bit more traditional like Kristen I don't know because I don't frame it all as like this is a thing you do for money mm -hmm. this is just like a way of breathing yeah like it's just a methodology for approaching the world, you know, and I think I said earlier, by any means necessary, any medium necessary, at all times in this little room in the backyard, I'm making and making to bring it into the house and it's just like a living process. And so I hope they see it as a living process that is just 
a way that you view the world, not like a way to make money or a title. Mm -hmm. And I think that will probably be true. I don't know whether they'll take on creative pursuits that mean the selling of artistry, but I hope that influence of artistic vision and making is woven into whatever process of whatever work or life they pursue. Yeah. Is that something that you feel like you have to talk to them about so that they don't feel this mm. need to pursue art for professional gain? I had to talk to Hawkeye about it a little bit just because what we were doing was getting a lot of attention and we oh. like started getting asked to be in commercials and people were filming at our house and all this kind of stuff Wow! like that because that got really big and we were Hawkeye was doing assignments for National Geographic at the age of four and a half. Wow. He did print magazine assignments for National Geographic at the ages of four or five and six. Wow. So I definitely had to say to him that, you know, we are not doing this because I want you to be a photographer for a job or be like me. I'm trying to show you how this is one tool that opens up the world and opens up a way to meet people and talk to people and see things differently. I'm not saying this is what I, I want you to do. I want you to do whatever you love, you know, yeah. whatever fills you up. So, so just, just one tool, just like I teach him how to use a nail gun or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I have taught, I taught him how to use a nail gun, I think, when he was six or seven. This is another nail gun. Yep. Yep. Cameras. There's a safety <laughs> on there for a reason, right? Like, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember when my kids went to preschool, they exposed them to some power tools at preschool and building things. And yeah. at first I was terrified. And then I saw the photos of them using it and like, how, you know, it's quite safe and things like that. And the kids loved it, right? It's just exploring this different aspect of something that we wouldn't necessarily do at home because that's not, that's not how I spend my time. Yeah. But. I think the lesson that I've taught them is that we, Hueys, can make anything we want. Yeah. We have any material, anytime we want. That's just, if, if they can believe some even tiny piece of that, then they, that'll be really useful in life for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Tell me a little bit about how you think about exploration and risk-taking. Because you've mentioned, you seem like you've been a risk-loving or risk-seeking person. You've explored the world. You've been in some situations that were probably most people would consider a little riskier. You know, war and things like that and your journey across the country. So how do you think about that and how does that come into being in your family? This is a hard balance because I'm not very balanced. And I think it's <laughs> especially hard for Kristen because she'll see like if I'm on national, uh, on a sign for National Geographic and I'm in Bears Ears National Monument, I'm sharing videos of myself on like two foot wide ledges to get to different cultural heritage sites. Like it freaks her out and it makes her mad because she's like, well, don't you know you have a family? Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, well, but I'm like, I was, I'm like, oh, I'm a really good rock climber and I yeah. climb 513 and like that was like just a hike. It wasn't a climb and I'm, I know I'm safe and all this stuff, but it, but we do get into that thing where it's like, well, what are you showing your children? Because your children are not 513 climbers and your children watch a kind of, you know, like blase attitude about like doing really dangerous things. So I think that's kind of an ongoing struggle is to try to figure out where that line is. And I'm trying to catch myself more 
of like making sure I lay out like safety things before I do things because I do behave very often as like almost like a kid would when I arrive at a place, I run right into a situation and climb up a thing because I have the physical expertise of a life lived of doing those things. And I have to pause and be like, I have a 13 year old behind me and he hasn't done that. And I need to explain how to do that right. And maybe not run right up to that cliff and start climbing on it. Yeah. Especially because, you know, kids model the behavior that they see in their parents. Well, and a lot of adults, but so I imagine that is even more, you know, something that you have to work on with yeah. them. I worry about it less with Juno because Juno shows none of those tendencies, uh-huh. but Hawkeye shows 150% of them, <laughs> not a regular 100%. Yeah. Well, he's got that 13-year-old brain like kind of puts that on overdrive, right? He's so, the thunder being. Yeah, that's right. He's the thunder being. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to, you mentioned, you know, when you're on assignment and you're crossing a, the two-foot narrow pass and you sending Kristen a video and she gets kind of angry. I don't send her a video. She saw it on social media, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> I, You're not bragging about it. It's on my propaganda channel. It's like it's on my personal propaganda network. Got it. And Got she it. unfortunately sees things on there sometimes that yeah. the world should see, but that she should not. Yeah. <laughs> so, so clearly that's an aspect of your life where maybe you don't always see eye to eye. For sure. What are some other places where you and your wife don't agree when it comes to parenting? I think it's probably hard for me to really identify those ones consciously because I'm, I just live almost through endless creative impulse. The life of the ADHD man yeah. is, is often I'm not, I just don't see the whole thing. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a constant struggle in not seeing everything, not seeing maybe a danger that I expose or a risk that I need to pause on or not seeing a behavior in a child she needs help with or seeing a behavior in myself as a partner that needs to shift. Like I think this, the biggest struggles are just that like constantly wrestling with that kind of brain and like expanding my field of view to be less tunnel vision. Yeah. That is one thing that I, you know, I have, my son has ADHD. And one thing I've observed for sure is this idea, you can have a hard time focusing, but then when you get focused on something, you have a really hard time, as you mentioned, the tunnel vision. Yeah. It's always hyper-focus. Yeah. It's always hyper-focus, especially with Hawkeye. It's, it's extreme hyper-focus and like super genius brain with hyper-focus is like, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, then when I'm like, oh man, it's so hard. Then I pause. I'm like, Oh, uh, wait, I'm just a big version of that. God, it's really hard for my wife. <laughs> <laughs> She's got two think, almost adults to deal with. For a long that. time, I don't think I even saw that. I don't think I even saw what that situation was. So as much as like the ADHD label gets like way, it feels like almost overused, like everybody overnight got a new ADHD like diagnosis over the last three years. Mm-hmm. Something about like addressing it and reading about it like gave us new tools to help me see more clearly like my behavioral patterns and what happens outside of the tunnel and like what is happening in my own son's tunnel. That yeah, 100%. I, I agree. So, you know, one of the things you mentioned to me was you haven't had to give up a whole lot to become a dad. You seem like you've incorporated your kids into your lives pretty well, right? And expose them to a lot of the things that you experience. 
But I wanted to ask you a bit about how being a photographer who has to travel around the world and be away and things like that, you know, how does that affect family life? When you have kids, do you bring them along with you? Do you call them from the road? How has that all balanced itself out? They can't go on the road because all projects and all jobs are too, they're too high pressure, too high stakes. All these jobs are really high stakes, even if it doesn't yeah. seem on the surface like it's high pressure. The movements behind them, what has to happen in a certain amount of time, they're just always just too much at stake. I can't take kids on those trips unless I invent jobs essentially with children which i was able to do with hawkeye and it was one of the reasons i wanted to do that i was doing like 35 day trips into the himalayas you know and i couldn't take my kids so i think part of that time was inventing assignments with hawkeye but now i mean to be honest like some of that world's going away disney is dismantling national Geographic magazine mm. what we know as national Geographic magazine is not going to exist anymore it's done wow it goes off of shelves january 1st i did not know that yeah, subscribers will still get a bit of, beyond like the way everybody talks around it. That era is gone. Like mm. these big assignments that take us all over the world, they're going to be, you know, one one hundredth of what there were just a few years ago. Mm. So I don't really face the reality of knowing that I'm going to go for like 30 days at a time. I come up with new things. I'm doing work sometimes for a week or two weeks at a time for a particular client for advocacy, like the Grand Canyon Trust or different conservation projects where I travel a lot for amplifier speaking and meeting with partners and funders and artists, but I don't face that month-long kind of scenario anymore. But what's interesting is actually, and Chris and I talk about this, she needs me to be gone 50% of the time because our marriage is built on me being gone 50% of the time. I'm too much. Yeah. She needs space. Yeah. And so actually, when I don't have assignments, I kind of need to make some stuff up to give her some space. <laughs> and luckily, I mean, uh, there's no shortage of, you know, Aaron Huey startups. They might not be big tech startups, but there is an endless series of Aaron Huey startups with new fellowships and artists in residencies I'm building and yeah, like mega projects with different client partners that each is essentially an entire movement in itself. That means that, you know, I do travel a lot to New York and San Francisco and LA, like over and over and and we kind of need that cadence. And every once in a while I worry about, you know, is one of the things, is it, do I feel like I'm neglecting the kids? Every once in a while I'm like, I'm not around as much. And like, and I do compartmentalize. I don't pine for family when I'm away. I do have a compartmentalization that allows me to keep making. Yeah. And to come home and be home. Yeah. But not to be lamenting my, my not being home. So... Mm -hmm. I travel and I miss my family, but I'm not mourning the fact that I'm not there. And I think ultimately, like, it's probably healthy because I remain inspired and my children see what it means to be a movement builder and an artist and a maker. And I think that for all the negatives of when I'm not there and I can't be there for some important moments where Kristen needs me there, like as a mm -hmm. father, and I can't be there for those, that I think what gets filled in in that gap, like when I come back is a different kind of filler that we need like yeah. uh, there is an inspiration and a makerdom and a life perspective that i believe makes up for absence yeah and where it's actually needed we need it yeah with all of that right and the support that you have from Kristen, and you know the leaning in when you're home still 
What would you say is a mistake that you've made as a father? Uh, I mean, it's always going to be related to tunnel vision. You can carry the same thing across to partnership, father, partner, what's a mistake you've made or what could, it's always like not seeing them clearly enough, not being present enough. Even when I'm home, like I'm not going to play the game where I'm like, because I'm on the road when I'm home, I'm so present. Like I am making dozens of overlapping mega projects at all times and they swallow up my attention. Yeah. And so always the regrets or things I could do better are finding more and more ways to pop out of the tunnel and see the bigger picture and see whether it's my children or my wife clearly. Mm -hmm. And like with a very present like eye and heart, you know, I think if we're talking about like logistics and like things that happen in life, we'll kind of have to wait to see like, was it a mistake letting something build up like a Hawkeye Huey Instagram account to a quarter of a million people and, you know, filming commercials and things. I have not seen negative effects of that as Hawkeye as a 13 year old, because he never looked at those things. It was really just a way that we told our story to the exterior world, not to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So he didn't look at it to seek attention or approval because we just left it out of the picture. But, you know, it is a question like, is that something that we'll we'll have to wait to see? Like, was having children on social media like a bad idea, even if they don't use it? And I don't know if you've seen, there was a commercial that was put out this summer, I think out of Germany that showed like, it, it was about children on the internet and it was about AI's ability, you know, the AI tools used to clone children's images and voices to turn them into all kinds of things, whether yeah. to trick parents, to hack accounts, to create child pornography. Like, what is opening up ahead of us with our children's imagery on the internet and the future of AI is mind boggling. And I think very few people, you know, percentage wise in this world are watching that carefully yeah. enough. And I, you know, I'm watching it, and so I have to ask a lot of those questions about what needs to be purged from the web. Yeah. We've already put all of our lives and our children's lives on there. Yeah. So I can erase as much as I want. There's always going to be a story somewhere with those pictures of my kids when they're four and five years old. Yeah, the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, on that stuff, and it's almost impossible. But It is impossible. It is impossible, yeah. It does sound, though, you know, and and I wanted to ask you about you know, how you have a 13-year-old son, and it seems like every kid, teenager, preteen, is obsessed with social media, right? And there's tons of documentaries now about the the evils yeah. of social media, which can be very scary. And you have a son who's 13 and has an Instagram account with hundreds of thousands of followers and doesn't even really look at it, doesn't care about it. He doesn't it. look at it. And yeah. he'll, he is not going to have a cell phone with internet access until he's over 16. He's got three more years. It's just too dangerous. I don't want my yeah. children shaping their lives based on likes and on mimicking what they're seeing on social media. I think it's anybody paying attention should not cave to peer pressure or societal norms of letting their kids have an iPhone at the age of 12 or 13 or even 14. And like, maybe I'm pushing it kind of late, but my particular kind of child should definitely not have a phone till he is 16 years old. There are some other kids that maybe 
have a kind of impulse control. But even the kids, I think, with extreme impulse control and really neurotypical, like, mm-hmm. are still going to be shaped by social media in a way that we as parents don't want them to be shaped. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like in your family, you have a very healthy relationship with this and like how you think about it and, you know, keep some of those evils from filtering into your life. So, it's still a struggle though, because I want my kids to have like electronic creative tools. Like I make everything on computers. I'm building virtual worlds and using photogrammetry and I'm doing animations. And I want my son to know what it's like to use Photoshop and to use these tools. Mm -hmm. But then with every computer that's got Photoshop on it, it is impossible to stop him from downloading things. Like there's always a way around it. And we've, you know, for the, our healthy cell phone social media policy it doesn't mean that we're not in a relentless struggle with any kind of screen yeah like hawkeye has figured out where we hide all ipads and laptops and has figured out all the codes like he always can find a way sure to get to one of them and it's a almost a daily like struggle to not have a computer in his hands because it's just what we do and i guess we probably did that in the 80s and 90s in the parents' basement watching TV, but something feels very different. Something feels much more dangerous about it in a live connected universe. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's it. It's the connectivity of it. It's the, you know, the distribution of it. You know, it's, you're not watching MASH in the basement, right? Like it's very different. And Um, I'm not anti-tech. I'm like, I'm building live spatial web worlds to teach cultural heritage and change how we teach, you know, pre-colonial American history in live metaverse worlds. I'm like way in this, like I'm making talk show episodes from the metaverse in avatar bodies. My current National Geographic magazine assignment is photographing with virtual cameras in virtual worlds using a dozen different avatar bodies. I am not anti-tech, No, but my kids are not ready for like unlimited live internet access and social media. And I don't think most kids are. Yeah. I do think that is a growing movement of people realizing that and parents banding together, but it kind of does take either living off the grid or banding together with other parents because it's really hard when one kid gets a thing in the group and then it's like this domino or snowball effect, you know? I haven't even had a second thought about it with Hawkeye. I don't feel a single percentage of societal or peer pressure for Hawkeye to have a, a fancier device. It That's will great. not happen. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So last question, and then I wanted to ask you a little bit of a rapid fire round, which yep. is always fun. But you started a lot of companies. You're an enterprising guy. You've started Amplifier. You've done a tons of different projects. How do you feel about this idea of startup hustle culture and how that kind of fits in or doesn't fit in with family life? I think that the framing of it got ruined for me because when I think of the word startup, I think of like the experiences I went through in 2022 and the Web3, like crypto times. I don't regret making what I made because I learned so much and I'm still building these things on chain in spatial worlds. But boy, maybe I need to like go like figure out how to get that version of the word startup out of my mind. (laughs) You need a cleanse. (laughs) I need a cleanse because it's not like I don't believe I can do startups. Like I want to have access to 
big chunks of capital to build sure. dreams. And I'm yeah. a creative director. I think I just need to stay away from like money pitching in peak moments of hype cycles. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like it just is so much smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And a lot of good intentions and a lot of just bizarre. It was a bizarre world. Yeah. All right. Well, let's <laughs> cut. No, that's a great segue to our rapid fire round. All right, let's do it. Which is always fun and funny. But actually, before we get into rapid fire, I wanted to ask if folks want to follow your work, support you and the projects you're working on, what's the best way for them to kind of follow your journey and get involved? It seems, I mean, there's a lot of ways, but what would yeah. you recommend as the canonical place for them to look? Uh, I think I'll probably have a well-updated web persona online by the time this comes out at you know, connected to my name, AaronHuey.com. I also sometimes use the web domain Hello Prototype to <laughs> uh, redirect to it because I, my methodology for making is that everything I do, no matter how big, is a prototype for the next, and it keeps me loose. And so I realized that, especially because I work with so many mediums, that Hello Prototype might be a better creative director kind of name than just my name. Um, and Amplifier.org is my nonprofit and where I do a lot of my movement building. And then just over the coming, you know, months and years, we're going to be seeing the fellowship roll out and the artists in residency in Southern California roll out. But I should be pretty easy to find on the interwebs. Awesome. I will make sure that we link all of that in the show notes when this comes out. Okay. With that, it's rapid fire time. Here's how rapid fire works. Also known as the lightning round. I say a question. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind as your answer to that question, and we'll go All through right. this as quickly as we can. Are you ready, Aaron? I hope so. Let's do it. <laughs> no one is ever ready for rapid yeah. fire, but it's always great. Okay. Question number one. What is the most indispensable parenting product you have ever purchased? For babies, white noise machines. For my kids at the age they are now, cameras. Cool. What is the most useless parenting product that you've ever purchased? Parenting books. All right. What is the most frustrating thing that has ever happened to you as a dad? Oh, most frustrating thing as a dad. Gosh. Kids refusing to do really basic household chores like they're damn little princes and princesses. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. What is your go-to dad wardrobe? Or in your case, just your go-to wardrobe? Uh... I try to only wear uh, custom-made T-shirts that I make, my nonprofit makes, or that come from independent artists. Awesome. Love that. And a Wyoming state hat or uh -huh. a cowboy hat. If I, I almost always have a cowboy hat on. This is one of those rare days because I didn't know I was doing a video interview. I usually And gold shoes. Whenever I'm doing anything of consequence, uh -huh. I wear gold shoes. Okay. All right. Now... I'm probably going to know the answer to this, but because of your earlier answer, but how many parenting books do you have in your house? There are some. I don't okay. know which ones they are, but I know my wife bought some. <laughs> so then I think I know the answer to the next question, which is how many of those parenting books have you personally read cover to cover? Zero. But okay. I actually am interested in getting a book to read about super smart ADHD young boys. I'll probably get his book on tape and listen to it okay. while I'm driving on a long trip. There you go. What are the favorite ages for your kids so far? If I think about them individually, 
probably Hawkeye in those times where we get to be literally together so much, four to four, five, six, seven on all mm -hmm. those like long trips. Juno, just all these last years, you know, six, seven, eight, and this moment right now at eight. Yeah, great. What about the opposite? What is your least favorite age for your kids? Uh, anytime Hawkeye's acting like the teenager, he probably will become. <laughs> <laughs> so right now. <laughs> but it's like really hit or miss. Like it's, yeah. it's really extreme day to day. So yeah. some days are the best day ever, which is I think the parenting of teenagers. Is that better or worse than the three-year-old screaming age? It's probably better because we're not in territory where I'm scared of him or for him. Uh, and I can still go do really cool stuff with him. So okay. this is probably the screaming child was harder. Yeah, cool. We talked about your thoughts on screen time. Good, mm -hmm. bad, or indifferent? Seems like bad is bad, your Bad, bad. But we watch a lot of movies together as a family with a big projector. Oh, just cool. On the wall. You know, we're a big movie family. It's just stream time that's controlled and not connected to the interwebs. Okay. What is your take on minivans? I am not opposed, but our go-to is a, a four-door truck because I'm always building. I'm doing endless overlapping construction projects, and Kristen has an electric car. Okay. we want everything to be electric. We just can't afford electric trucks yet. Yeah, me neither. I do hope those get more affordable because they're very yep. cool. What is the most embarrassing thing you have ever done in front of one of your kids? I'm sure it was some version of my own freak out of yelling where later I was like, I am a, an asshole and a bad dad and I didn't handle that well. And I yeah. can't believe I didn't keep my cool. I'm supposed to be the one that's keeping my cool. God damn it. <laughs> Whenever I lose my cool, probably. Yep. Now you're an artist so and your kids are very artistic as well, very creative. But I'd like to know if you've ever secretly thrown away a piece of your kid's artwork. A lot. Yeah. Probably yesterday. But I also like, I'm a curator all day, every day. So we're like, I'm, I'm like always curating the best stuff at the top. We're like serving up things I know will be home runs. Like when we do painting together. We paint on cutouts that I cut out with a jigsaw made out of wood. Because I know that I'm going to want to hang them on my walls and they'll last nice. longer. So wow. endless curation. That's awesome. What is the most absurd thing that one of your kids or both of them have ever asked you to buy for them? They are pretty tame in that. I think it's all pretty regular. They always want some kind of device or computer. Hawkeye probably wants a gaming computer that I won't give him. Mm -hmm. They want cats that I don't think we can handle taking care of that my wife also wants. That's probably it. All right. Are you a secret fan of any particular Disney or Pixar movie, or do you have a different fandom? I do not want to vote for Disney because they're dismantling National Geographic currently, yeah. but I will vote for any Miyazaki film. One of our favorites is Howl's Moving Castle or Ponyo. Great. We'll link that in the show notes too. I've never watched either of those, so I got to Oh, dang, you're going to get hooked. Yeah. Every my, Miyazaki. Yeah. Every my, my one of them. out for me now. You are a builder, so I imagine that you are very good at assembling toys and assembling yep. other things. But what is your worst experience in either toy assembly or furni kids' furniture assembly or something like that? Only Ikea. I don't like putting together Ikea stuff. And I think when the kids were babies, we had to do a lot more of that kind of junk. And I think we, we had made a pact with ourselves that we would not allow ourselves to buy 
where IKEA furniture because it's really un- not fun to put together. We started trying to make Hawkeye put it together from a very early age yeah. to learn those skills so we didn't have to do it. Okay, two more questions for you. How often do you tell your kids back-in-my-day stories? More and more all the time. Just last week, we did back-to-back Ferris Bueller and War Games, two Matthew Broderick oh, films from the great. 80s. And it was full of so many things that made us want to say back in the day to our kids, like <laughs> old-timey-looking Pizza Huts and yeah, like pay phones. And we had to explain to kids what the dials on telephones were and how yeah. in my own childhood, in my hometown... It was like dial, like it was a dial and you only had to dial five numbers in my hometown. Wow. Only five numbers. You didn't have to dial like seven. That's amazing. And the, you know, the Maverick Country Store gas station, you get unlimited sizes of soda pop for 25 cents back in the day. Wow. (laughs) Back in the day. Back in the day. You know, we too have started watching a bunch of 80s movies with our kids. We'll do marathons over holidays and things like that. And they really like them. And then also there's some where you you look at them and you're like, man, that is horribly inappropriate by today's standard. Super, super inappropriate. And our kids are really quick at calling that stuff out. And we're just Good. like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's how it is. And different time. Good thing okay. you know now. Okay. Last question for you. This is a big one. How many times in a given week, maybe this week, have you said, go ask your mother to one of the kids? Mostly I say that to Hawkeye. He is out of town on an adventure camp on kayaks and camping. So this week I've said it zero times, but last week I said it every other day at least. (laughs) What is an example of a reason that you would say, go ask your mother? Anything about even screen time that doesn't have to do with social. Like Hawkeye always wants to watch his favorite shows are so much inappropriate stuff in them. I love it. It's 30 Rock. And yeah. The Office oh. are his favorite shows. Yeah. And he will watch those things on and on, and he wants to watch them every night, and he wants too many episodes, and then, like, it'll be getting too late, and he'll come out, you know, he'll come find me, and he'll be like, can I watch, can I just watch one Office, or can I watch, and I'm like, dude, I don't know, you got to ask your mom. <laughs> every time. Yep, yep. I the hate, ultimate equalizer. I, I hate getting into screen time. Yeah. With him. I don't like, it's never a fun conversation. So I want my wife to have that conversation with him today (laughs) and every day, apparently. (laughs) Well, on that, thank you very much, Aaron, for coming on the Startup Dad podcast and talking to me about your life, about your family. I learned a ton about you. This was fascinating. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with Aaron Huey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can stay up to date on my other thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening.